Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here again with Darlan Chang. How are you doing? Doing great. How about you? Very good. Glad to have you here again. I bet most listeners probably just listened to your first episode, but for those who didn't, you worked at Exxon for, if I remember right, 16 years. And all that time, you had some expectation or hopes that you saw that they said that they intended to follow Paris agreements or, or have some plan to lower their emissions and hoped and acted to get them to do that and eventually felt this is not going to happen. And despite having nothing specific to go to, a risk that many people feel, I'm sure a lot of listeners are at companies or in communities where they wish people were doing more and they're afraid to act. But you, you were afraid to act, but you acted. And you weren't, courage is not, not fear, it's acting despite the fear. And I think you courageously acted to, to move out on your own. Then, and then Exxon has had this big board level, very public I don't know if you call it a fight, but a small hedge fund, but I think backed by a big one. This is, this is what I know, is that there's a small hedge fund that was backed by BlackRock, but it says like the small fund got a quarter of the seats on Exxon's board, which sounds like, that sounds like a pretty big deal, but I don't know it that well. So I emailed you and you said, yeah, you, you know, I think you know more about it than the average person. There's that. And there's also your personal life. And I'm curious... Could we talk about how are things going since last we spoke? And then maybe we can get into this big front page Exxon stuff. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Uh, I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I think uh, since the Inside Climate News story came out and then we had our first podcast, uh, there's been a lot of people who have reached out to me who, who have similar feelings of uh, not being able to do what they feel they, they should do as, as part of the uh, transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, within their their jobs, um, they they feel helpless. They uh, it's mostly Americans that contact me. Uh, I, I had a few articles and reporters who uh, interviewed me for European stories, but uh, I didn't get as much feedback. I think it's mostly an American phenomenon where people are well educated and aware of the need for transition away from fossil fuel here in the U.S., but they don't see the same kind of seriousness implied by the best climate science in the workplace. They don't see the, uh, the transition in, in action in their own day-to-day activities, nor in the plans of their management or the plans of their companies. And uh, I made a decision to leave ExxonMobil, and I knew that would be hard to transition to renewable energy jobs because there's just not enough of them compared to all the people who want to be a part of the transition away from fossil fuels. But I did know that I, I could have control over the community that my daughter grew up in. And that's why I decided to move to the Geos neighborhood, which is one of the few decarbonized all electric neighborhoods in the US. Uh, they're more common in Europe, but they're very rare in the US. And in my neighborhood, there are 28 homes that uh, use no fossil fuels. They are completely all electric. They use geothermal heat pumps in order to heat in the winter and to cool the house during the the summer. And uh, unfortunately, we just found out about three weeks ago that the new developer of our neighborhood is planning to put in natural gas lines for the next 90 homes and ultimately for the next 200 homes that are going to be built in our neighborhood. So even though we've had this first block of 28 homes that were built successfully, without using natural gas and with no natural gas lines whatsoever in our area. The new developer is going back on his initial pledge when he bought the land from the previous developer. The previous developer had built the first 28 homes. He unfortunately got divorced last uh, fall. And because of the divorce, he was forced to sell his property uh, under the terms of the divorce. And uh, when he sold the property to the new developer, he did not put in any language that required that the new developer would not use natural gas. And unfortunately, even after press release from the new developer saying that uh, he would stick with the standards that were put in place by the first 28 houses, he went back on that pledge. And uh, he didn't make that apparent to us. He didn't uh, tell us that until three weeks ago. That was only after we forced his hand by going to the media and uh, we got a story on the Colorado Public Radio just a week ago where uh, they mentioned this fight over natural gas and they mentioned the fact that uh, the developer had uh, not been willing to talk with them and had not uh, 
been open with residents about whether he was intending to use natural gas. So because of that, uh, fortunately, we were able to get the developer to admit it. And uh, fortunately, we got a lot of attention from state legislators who uh, requested a visit to our neighborhood in order to find out uh, if there's anything they can do about this uh, travesty of uh, natural gas signs being put in uh, one of the first decarbonized neighborhoods in Colorado. Uh, and if not, what legislative action can be taken to prevent this in the future? I'm curious of a few things. The first one is how does this feel for you residents? I'm hearing the rug being pulled out from under you. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, I, I think that's a fair characterization. We had been misled by the new developer that he was gonna honor the promises of the, the previous developer. Uh, the previous developer still lives in our neighborhood and uh, he was also misled. Uh, he also tried to convince the new developer to go with the builder who built the first 28 homes. So for those listeners who aren't aware, the developer is the one who uh, buys the land and puts in the infrastructure in the land. And then the developer sells the land to a builder who actually builds the home. So the builder of the 28 homes who actually had experience with all electric uh, houses, that builder was willing to make an offer to the new developer to buy the land for the next 91 homes, take the land off the hands of the new developer and, and uh, build the next 90 homes decarbonized. But the new developer refused to take that offer because the new developer had actually selected a national builder, a builder who uh, had uh, who's the 24th largest builder in the nation, and to use that new builder to build out the next houses as quickly and cheaply as possible. So that's when we found out that the new developer actually had already selected a builder. Uh, up until that point, the developer had not told us anything about that. On the one hand, it sounds like you're describing something that's very particular to this one particular neighborhood and one set of developers and builders. On the other hand, this pattern seems pretty common. I mean, it sounds like what governments do all the time on regional and national scales on that promises. There's a graph that I, I just posted on my blog showing the curve of CO2 uh, measured in Hawaii and it has arrows pointing to when all the different Montreal, not Montreal, but the, uh, the protocols Paris and all the ones before that, no change in the output. The governments make all these promises. And this is to me why leadership is so important. One person in this case can make all the difference. Yes. If the previous developer had not gone divorced, we wouldn't have this issue. Mm -hmm. The whole issue was that he had to sell to a new developer. And despite the new developer making promises, the new developer was not legally bound to that. So, of course, a new developer would uh, act in uh, uh, his own interest to maximize his own profits. And, of course, he wouldn't tell us, uh, if he didn't have to, decisions that were going to be made by, by him and him alone. Uh, he gets to unilaterally decide whether to put a natural gas line, and he gets to unilaterally decide who the builder is. And uh, he uh, unilaterally decided as well to... Uh, exclude the previous builder who was capable of building decarbonized homes from being in the running because his justification was they couldn't build houses fast enough. They're a, they're a local Colorado-only builder, whereas a national builder can raise more financing to build a house much more quickly. This feels like the sort of thing that results in people lying down in front of bulldozers. I mean, I'm sure you guys are thinking like this if it comes to it. Yes, we're, we're thinking it, it may come down to it. Uh, uh, we're still about two months away. But until we, we get to that point, we, we hope that, that we can come to a, a resolution sooner and, um, and much more amicably. So we, we know that the developer is now hostile to us because of all the media attention that we've gotten on him. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're hoping that the new builder, the national builder that he chose, is going to be more willing to listen and willing to consider that the smaller builder was able to build the 28 homes all electric and affordably. So much so that a number of people bought into homes recently, not even knowing that they were decarbonized. They just bought these homes because they were about similarly priced to other homes in the area. So it shows how affordable decarbonized all electric homes can already be. Uh, and this doesn't even count all the savings that they get from not having to pay natural gas bills and uh, not having to pay electricity bills. I would guess that the national builder may suffer reputational harm if the national builder goes against the wishes of someone of, of a community wanting to decarbonize and instead throws in extra carbon when it was right there yes. easy to do 
whereas he, he could or they could get absolutely. positive press. Yes, absolutely. They they already have the first 28 homes decarbonized and all electric. It's already in the press that uh, the developer is not willing to continue to build decarbonized all, all electric. But the national builder has a chance to uh, save face. And um, in addition, they could really gain from all the knowledge and expertise and experience that they would get from learning how to find the right contractors who can do the work. The smaller builder was able to find contractors that also are available to the national builder to build all electric. It's just the national builder has to be persuaded. And we're hoping that the attention and the, the uh, state legislator attention will help persuade the new builder. Would it be useful for listeners to get in touch with you? Or is this something people should just observe? Or is there something people could do? Well, I would be happy to, to have them hear the Colorado Public Radio story. So I'll send you the link afterwards. And um, then uh, if they would like to contact me, I'd, I'd be happy to tell them more and uh, let them know if there's anything they can do to help. Okay, great. So everyone out there who's thinking, well, what can I do to make a difference? Well, we can start with something simple, listening to that to the NPR piece or the, the Colorado Public Radio piece, and then contacting you if they feel that they want to keep doing more. Yes. Let's switch to Exxon, if that's okay. Oh, yes, uh, for sure. The, the reason why I uh, talk about the story is it's related to my feelings working at Exxon. Um, uh, it's a similar story. When I first joined Exxon Mobil, I thought that uh, it being a very large company, the largest non-governmentally owned uh, oil and gas company in the world, that it was really committed to what my recruiters told me was the vision of being an international energy company. Uh, in the end, what people want is energy. In the end, if people want to be lifted out of poverty, want to live a modern life, they need energy. Uh, that doesn't have to be fossil fuel energy. That just happened to be fossil fuel at the time. And uh, that was after about two decades of oil and gas prices that had chastened the industry and uh, made them willing to consider transitioning to other forms of energy. But the problem was that over the course of my career, about uh, 16 years, from 2003 to 2019, the uh, oil and gas prices skyrocketed a number of times. And uh, they were still at historically high levels up until four years before I left. It was only in my last four years at ExxonMobil that oil prices had cratered. But because of the high oil and gas prices, that was the reason why there was no transition that uh, I expected um, when I started my career there. And I, I think it's got parallels with what I'm seeing right now. I thought it was under my control to move to a community that was decarbonizing. But it turns out that it's not decarbonizing anymore because the real estate prices have uh, just shot through the roof. And uh, that's the major problem that I see when the prices are really high, then the tendency is to just drop all pretense of wanting to do the right thing and just to maximize your own profit. And that's what I saw what happened at ExxonMobil and what I'm seeing happen with the developer who just wants to build the homes as quickly and cheaply as possible to take advantage of the spike in real estate prices right now. It reminds me of during the pandemic when pictures of Beijing skies looking so clean were coming out and the dolphins were swinging in the canals. People were saying, oh, see, look at all this change we can do. But they weren't not polluting because they wanted to. They were doing it because they had to, in part to save their own skins. And if we don't lead in the sense of work with hearts and minds, if we, just, if we force people not to do stuff, they won't for some time, but then they'll rebound. And that's why you changed because you wanted to. Yeah. One of the quotes I remember you, I think I remember this, was that you, one of the managers at Exxon said, yeah, we do want the total amount of emissions to decrease or the amount of fossil fuels burned to decrease. But while that decrease is happening, we want Exxon's share to increase. And I thought, well, yep, sounds like BP and Shell are saying the same thing. Right. It's all about maximizing their own power. And our, the performance ranking system in ExxonMobil just amplifies that. It's all about the decision makers wanting to maximize their own power. So that happened uh, about a month before I left ExxonMobil. I went to a upstream-wide restructuring presentation and uh, at the end of it, I asked the question to the forum, to the presidents of the new companies after the restructuring that um, the IPCC was saying that as a world, we needed to reduce our emissions in half, just to have a good chance at uh, averting the worst consequences of climate crisis. Uh, how is this consistent with 
uh, ExxonMobil saying that they wanted to increase their production by 25% by 2025. And the response was that uh, although the world may need a reduction in the use of fossil fuels, we're determined as ExxonMobil to produce the biggest portion of that remaining uh, allowable fossil fuels to be burned. I know that a lot of listeners are going to get turned off by what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that as much as there's a lot of people, and I hear like a visceral hatred for Exxon for uh, knowing things and not sharing it and acting on things that are acting opposite of what predictions would say on an individual level. Now people say, well, individual, the effect compared to Exxon is not, is negligible maybe, but you have one, everyone has 100% control over their own decisions and they can do these things. And you did this, but most people say they look the other way for their own personal behavior. And I think, I mean, we're all voters. We all, you know, all of us, when we put down our money to pay for a gallon of gas, or we put down our money to buy bottled water in a plastic container, or we order stuff that comes with a lot more shipping than necessary, uh, ship uh, packaging than necessary, we are driving that system. And you say it's not on a scale of Exxon, but it's on the scale of, it's on the biggest scale that you possibly can. And that's one of the reasons I brought you on. You, someone might say, well, he's just one person. Well, he's one person who acted by his values and took a bigger risk than most people did. I don't hear you unhappy. I mean, I didn't know that before I spoke to you the first time, but uh, I hear you more energized than before, not less. As res- I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to continue that. Not just energized, but less twisted up inside. I think you were probably contorted in mental gymnastics before. And now I think I hear a comfort, like you're annoyed at what's going on with this housing development, but that's not internal. Internally, I, I hear you more in line with your values. Yes, for sure. I, I'm not a saint. I, like many Americans, have to live a typical uh, work-life balance where uh, you have to commute uh, tremendous amounts of time. In my case, I had to commute an hour and a half round trip uh, for the first uh, 11 years or so. And then the last five years, I had to commute three hours round trip. So my commute got worse over time. I was stuck in traffic uh, for, for much of my day. I came home exhausted and had little to give to my family. I had little give to give my, to my community, little to give to the political landscape. Um, and uh, yet I felt I was swimming upstream in terms of living my values. I had an electric car. I bought a Nissan Leaf in 2011, and I was able to make the round trip to my old campus. But when they moved the new campus further away to make it uh, 50 miles away from my uh, home, I had to do a 100-mile round trip, which was beyond the 70-mile range of my electric vehicle. So I was forced to abandon it because all my requests to get an electric vehicle charger at the new campus went unheeded. So I had to do the next thing, next best thing I could, which was a van pool. And then, you know, within uh, my own lifestyle, I lived in a community that uh, refused to allow me to put up solar panels. So even wanting to have a personal choice of having solar panels, I was not allowed to because my community had designated it as a, a nuisance and as an eyesore that would lower property values. But I, I suspect that, in fact, that they just didn't want to have any competition to, to fossil fuels. Yeah, I hear there's a lot of uh, fossil fuel interests in Texas. Now, the recent Exxon board vote, how closely did you follow it? Right. Uh, I didn't follow it very closely. Uh, part of the reason is, as you mentioned, I had uh, become more at peace with myself, more uh, feeling like I had control over my life. Granted, I'm unemployed, but uh, with no boss to, uh, to worry about and no workplace to worry that the lawyers might uh, come after me if I say something on, on the media, I was very heavily involved with uh, talking with reporters, talking to the media, and, and trying to spread the word about how it's completely feasible to live all electric and to abandon fossil fuels now. Uh, and it's possible for people to do it affordably and to do it without uh, uh, having to make as, as much sacrifice as they think. And uh, I wasn't very tuned in to what was happening with ExxonMobil until I saw what was happening on LinkedIn with my, my previous, uh, my prior colleagues in ExxonMobil, many of whom had left ExxonMobil as well and, and went to other jobs. Unfortunately, I don't know anybody who left ExxonMobil and went to a renewable energy company, but uh, I do know that they still are very active on LinkedIn in, uh, in talking about uh, what's going on with ExxonMobil. And uh, that's how I got clued in into what was happening. And what was happening was that a small fund called Engine Number One um, that had its roots in Silicon Valley 
Uh, they had only 0.02% of the shares of ExxonMobil, but they were rallying the other investors to vote at the upcoming shareholder meeting, which uh, happened uh, last month. And they were rallying them to vote out four of the 12 members of the board on ExxonMobil. And they had recommended four people that they believed were much more climate aware and much more willing to consider what ExxonMobil needs to do in order to transition away from fossil fuels. And three of the four got um, uh, voted in. And the reason was not because of engine number one alone, but because they convinced other big investors like um, BlackRock and uh, uh, CalPERS, the California Pension Fund. Um, they convinced big investors to go along with them. And the big investors, having made promises to their uh, clients that uh, they were going to influence their the, the companies that they invested in to take climate change seriously, they they got the message. They agreed with engine number one that ExxonMobil was not not in line with its peers, not performing well financially either. Compared to other big oil and gas companies, ExxonMobil was, was a lagger too, not only in uh, refusing to take the actions that their peers were on uh, transitioning away from fossil fuels. But uh, I think what made this all possible was similar to what I saw when I first started with ExxonMobil. Uh, it was a year of ExxonMobil losing a record amount of money, $22 billion. And it was um, their undisciplined spending. They spent a lot of money on unconventionals. And unconventionals turned out to be, as many engineers and scientists have pointed out over the last decade, a big money loser because they didn't perform nearly as well as conventional oil and gas wells did. They only lasted about two or three years versus two or three decades for conventional wells. So although it might look like you're getting a great return when you first frack your well, uh, after two or three years, you have to go back and refrack again, or you have to drill new wells to make up for the, the old wells that no longer are producing at what they used to. So this final realization that uh, ExxonMobil had over-invested in unconventionals and it wasn't paying off, I think that was also part of why investors were willing to vote out uh, three of the uh, directors, three of the board members, and replace them with people who uh, had more experience and um, expertise on uh, transitioning away from fossil fuels. So I think what ultimately made this possible was money. When a company is losing money, when a company doesn't do well, then they are um, vulnerable to uh, demands for change from investors. And um, when I started with ExxonMobil, uh, it wasn't as, as severe, but because of the two decades of oil and gas prices, there was more willingness to consider, at least in the upstream research company, moving away from fossil fuels. And uh, unfortunately, that got reversed when oil and gas prices went up. And I think, unfortunately, that's also happening now. Oil and gas prices are now about um, twice as much as they were last year. Uh, granted, it's because of economic recovery after COVID, but uh, that's not a good sign. If oil and gas prices keep going up, then that might take away some of the uh, momentum and maybe next year there won't be as much push to, to um, pressure ExxonMobil management to make that transition with fossil fuels. So although this is a step in the right direction, I think your listeners have to realize that um, it's not enough. We still need lots of activists. We still need a lot of people who are clued in. We still need all the other work that's going on outside of the investor world. It, it's great to see the investor world getting in on this. But a lot of what made this possible, too, is not only the oil and gas prices, but also the campaigns that divest from fossil fuels, all the activists who are convincing pension funds to get out of oil and gas investments, as, as well as universities. And uh, I was actually part of an effort here in Colorado. The pension fund in Colorado, it's called Pura. That pension fund is um, now about to divest from fossil fuels as well. So... This divestment from fossil fuel is part of what's driving the, uh, the, the stock price down for ExxonMobil. Uh, it's what's part of what's putting pressure on them. So even though oil and gas prices have rebounded, the fact that many institutions are divesting from fossil fuels are also keeping the pressure on ExxonMobil for now. And another thing that I, one thing I know that lowers prices is the law of supply and demand. And the less supply, the less demand there is the prices will drop. Yes. And most people will think, oh, well, what I do doesn't matter, and they'll just go and fill up anyway. It does. Yeah, absolutely. Changing culture to where people 
in the summer, use less air conditioning, you know, and, and dress appropriately. Maybe do a staycation instead of flying to someplace. These are things that will lower demand and that will lower the prices and that will accelerate. And maybe next time, instead of three seats, it'll be six seats and six seats will be half the board. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to individuals deciding not to use fossil fuels, there's also new houses being built without fossil fuel. That's why the fight in my neighborhood is so important, because if we can't prevent fossil fuel dependent homes from being built here, how are they going to be prevented in in future developments in Colorado and across the nation? This is a fight that's more than just about the next 200 homes here. It's a symbolic fight. It's about whether the beacon of hope that we already have a neighborhood of 28 homes, which can expand out to 200 homes and and more people can expand it out to thousands of homes and et cetera, et cetera. It has a potential to be viral, but it might be killed before it ever reaches that stage because of the unilateral decision of one developer trying to maximize his own profits. And that can't be allowed to happen. Um, there, there has to be media attention on this. There has to be neighbors willing to fight against this. And there has to be legislators willing to get into this. So it's not only the individuals, but it's also the individuals raising their voices, getting in the media, uh, getting the attention of legislators, and then demanding that the legislators put in policies to prevent this kind of thing from happening. So the policies that the legislators put in, that's where we're really going to be able to make things go viral. So when people think that what I do doesn't make a difference, it does. You are the example. You are being the change. And you have to you have to spread that message. You have to make your voice heard. And by being the change, you can you can put peer pressure on other people. You could make it cool. You could get people who previously didn't care to have fear of missing out on something that's really cool, which is uh, transitioning away from fossil fuels. And then that gets the attention of the legislators. And then that results in laws that actually prevent uh, profit-driven, short-term thinking people from making unilateral decisions. I want to remind people here that this is not a tree-hugging liberal at Berkeley. This is an Exxon engineer speaking. He's not, and you're not being, what's the word, Pollyanna or Kumbaya about it. You're being practical and I mean, also heartfelt. I mean, you've got a daughter and I imagine she's in your heart as you're doing these things. And I don't think you're talking about fighting as, I mean, this is not like fisticuffs. This is, I'm reading a passionate activity that brings you reward. And, you know, a a past guest, a guy who builds um, solar and wind farms, he told me that the number one predictor of people installing solar on their homes is how many of their neighbors installed it, not how much money you make or save or what your politics are. So when people, people aren't generally going to respond to arguments. Some will when they hear, they hear the numbers of CO2 emissions or hear this number for, you know, the amount of plastic in the ocean or something like that. Some will respond to that, but most people will respond to what their neighbors are doing, to what people in their communities are doing. So you, I'm, one of the things you're now in, in all the listeners community, you're one person who's actively, who has already actively changed his life to live in a, what, a non-carbon emitting home and community. And you want to keep it that way. And you want to extend that. I'm going to share, listeners probably know this about me. I don't, I don't know if I told you about this. Do you know that I did this partly as a measure of an act to test out resilience, not just the total amount, because my, my electric bill is pretty small, but in terms of resilience, like if we want to go in renewables that sometimes go down, well, most of the world is used to not having uptime on the scale that the United States has. We, you know, most places, I mean, there's some places in the US where where it'll go down more than a day or two out of the year, but most places it doesn't. But if we, if we could handle a couple of days without power, then suddenly the ability for renewables to supply all of our power goes up. So I unplugged my fridge. Did I tell you about that? No. Yeah. So last November, I unplugged my fridge and I thought the previous December, I'd unplugged it and kept it off for three months. This year, I went six and a half months without my refrigerator. Wow. Yeah. And at first, I really had no expectation I'd be able to. And I also thought, what am I going to do? I, I had no idea what I was doing, but I learned things that I kind of heard about and like fermenting vegetables instead of refrigerating them. That's what, I mean, I read this article about how the example was Vietnam, but many countries, they ferment more than they refrigerate. And I was like, oh, give that a shot. Turns out it makes food really delicious. And it's, it's really easy to do if I turn off the power. Everyone, there's a big push for more renewables and I'm all for it. But History shows that most of the time, humans, if you give them more, they'll use up the new stuff and keep using the old stuff. 
just because we build yeah. renewables doesn't mean that we will stop using fossil fuels. If it were up to me, we would first lower the fossil fuels. And I think that would accelerate the renewables more. But most people can't get that. But still, lowering our consumption of fossil fuels is something we can do ourselves. And just if, in my experience, if I force myself to do it, then I adjust. The adjustment is way easier than expected. And the discovery of living more sustainably and living in stewardship with others is very rewarding. So you generally have to face a problem to solve it. If you want to solve it in the abstract before it actually hits you, you start having to consider every possible case and solving problems that won't actually happen. But when you actually face the problem, you solve it. I mean, no one, you know, the adjustment period is going to be a lot smaller than people think. Like people think people are like hospitals are going to close and we're going to go back to the stone age. It's, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is people will adjust over a course of a couple of weeks. I mean, maybe a bit longer. Yeah, so we, we have a very good example of this, and, and that's COVID. And uh, people have now had the experience of seeing what can be done to save lives. And uh, the difference was that uh, the, the lives that were being saved for COVID, uh, people knew that they could be their grandparents. They, they could be their elderly neighbors. They knew that these people were vulnerable and they were willing to make sacrifices in order to, uh, in order to save those lives. The difference between COVID and climate change is the lives that are going to be saved are people that you have not even met yet, that uh, people that are, are too young to have any power right now, the unborn future generations. Uh, but I, I think people underestimate, too, that uh, how, how quickly the consequences of climate change could come. So it, it may turn out that people that they know will be affected, just particularly people who live in coastal regions, people who live in uh, developing countries that uh, could be affected very soon, maybe within a decade, if uh, not enough action is taken on climate change. I'm going to also throw in another difference. People might not remember it, but at the beginning of the pandemic, people were all freaked out because there were runs on toilet paper and things like that. And they thought it was going to be really a horror story. And I remember a lot of people coming to me and saying, and also all these news stories about it. Like they found out that, oh, they connected with people in new ways and they started doing things at home that they didn't used to do, like cooking and making sourdough and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, this is really rewarding. And people got tired of it. The story was that people got tired of it, but that was, let's just say that they really did get tired of it and they wanted to get out of the home more. Okay. The changes for living more sustainably aren't that you have to wear a mask. A lot of the big stuff is like eating more fresh fruits and vegetables, spending more time closer to your community. It's, very rewarding activities that people before doing it think, oh, it's going to be terrible. I'm never going to get to fly again. And some may voluntarily choose not to fly as, as, as I've grown into, but there's plenty nearby that they're going to find out is really awesome. And it's weird how if you look at what Americans rate as a comfortable temperature over the summer, keeps getting lower and lower and lower. Like what people were comfortable at higher temperatures and the amount that they think that they have to own keeps increasing as, as it does with their neighbors. And there's no absolute level, like your house must be 3,000 square feet. It used to be much smaller and people were very, very happy. And we can be just as happy as before. It's not the sacrifice people expect. Yeah, much of our um, preferences are actually just shaped by uh, our, our neighbors keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, and if other people live Similarly, then people are more willing to accept it. They, uh, it the problem is that uh, when they've gotten used to something, then they uh, find any potential change to it that's, uh, that's um, less luxurious or, or less uh, at a lower standard in, in their mind. Uh, then they, they recoil at it. But when everybody else is doing it and everybody else is uh, adopting those uh, practices, then people are very comfortable with it. It's, it's a matter of uh, equity. We tend to want to see equity among the people that we know. We, we want to keep up just because uh, uh, that was um, how our ancestors were wired. And it's actually really unnatural that we have so much inequality right now, that we have uh, people that uh, are, are barely surviving, barely able to pay their bills, uh, even with two or three jobs. And then even professionals who are supposed to be better off because of what they see other professionals doing, they also are driven to the point where they, they um, barely have any time or energy for their family in order to maintain their lifestyle, in order to keep up with, with the uh, other professionals. And um, this is where I think we, we've gone wrong. We, we just let inequality get to such an extent 
extent that um, there, part of the reason why the U.S. Uh, American democracy is um, is in such a sad shape compared to other democracies around the world is because uh, a lot of citizens just don't have the energy and time to pay attention to it and to participate in it. So they let the lobbyists get away with uh, influencing their legislators when if they paid attention and if they made the legislators pay, pay a price for uh, not listening to their constituents, then those lobbyists wouldn't have nearly as much power. Uh, I'm appalled to hear that uh, the corporations only have to spend on the order of millions of dollars to get billions of dollars of tax breaks. Millions of dollars might hire maybe 100 lobbyists. Uh, why do those 100 people have so much more power over the uh, uh, compared with the hundreds of thousands of people that uh, that should be able to uh, vote them out, to, to vote the, uh, the politician out who, who listens to the lobbyists. It's because just like a lot of Americans don't have enough time and energy for their family, they don't have enough time and energy for democracy either. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Yeah, you said Americans don't have the time or energy to do it. I think they don't realize that the time and energy that it will give them, because I think that they'll get a sense of reward. Leadership is very deeply rewarding. When you pick a value and you realize that that value is important to you and you act on it, or let me say put it in the first person. When I find something that's a value that's worth acting on to the over and above other things that are valuable, but not as, as valuable. That actually makes my life, like if I'm choosing between lots of different things and I can't tell what I want to do, that fear missing out, that feeling like, oh, I got to do it. What if I don't do this? What if I don't do that? I get scattered around. But the clarity that comes from recognizing this is important to me. I'm going to act on this. That gives me energy and I get free time from all these other things that are not less important. Every parent knows this. I mean, before you have a child, well, you can tell me better than I, you can speak with more experience than I can. But I think before you have a child, I think there's a lot of beautiful things in the world you know, there's pets and other people's kids and paintings and museums. And then you have a kid. And I suspect that all those other things are no less beautiful than they were before. But one's own kid is well worth saying, declining to go to the museums and declining to go to all those other things because it's worth it. And yeah, I'm sure parents are tired, but I'm sure it gives them energy to take care of their child and to work on stewardship is up there. Yeah. I, I think the other part of what makes uh, American democracy weak is that uh, value has been equated with money. And nowhere do we see this more than in the investor community. And uh, actually, uh, with uh, the insane amount of attention that's placed on the stock market and uh, on um, being able to uh, buy low, sell high, and, and be able to, the fear of missing out on uh, the next big stock, uh, the next big Apple, fear of missing out on uh, being able to make lots of unearned wealth. And uh, that's, I think, um, corrupting us in, in that uh, value isn't money. Um, once you have enough money to take care of uh, your real needs, not not all the wants that seem to be imposed upon you by by keeping up with uh, your peers, but your real needs. Um, beyond that, money doesn't have that much value, and the real value is in spending time with your friends and family. And the real value is actually having a legacy, uh, making a real difference, not just doing what you're told in order to make rich people richer. Instead doing what you really believe in, what you really want to do for the sake of the future and how you want to be remembered by your kids and future generations. Yeah, I often say that future generations aren't going to look back and say, oh man, those people in the 21st century, they got to uh, fly all over the world whenever they wanted. I think they're going to look back at us with horror and say, how could they choose this? Why would they get a bottle of water for this momentary fleeting thirst that is not even, I don't see people dying of thirst in the United States. And I see people going through a lot of bottled water. And I see a lot of bottled water, like discarded bottles on the ground, like half full of water. Like they wanted water for like a split second. They would have been fine without it. And 500 years from now, 
people are going to be looking back with horror at how we chose our craving over our community. Anyone who chooses community over craving doesn't regret that decision. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, Americans, we uh, pretty much more than any other country that I can think of right now. Um, we just had our, our values co-opted by, by money like, like no other country. And uh, you don't have to go to future generations. You just have to look at other uh, democracies who look at America with horror. I mean, I've had some experience with this when I uh, interviewed with European reporters. They were like kind of in horror that uh, how ExxonMobil, how my own experience, how the American experience is so much at odds with uh, what they see in their own countries. So you don't have to go to future generations. Just ask a European and they can tell you how um, twisted our, our values seem from their perspective. Well, for those who haven't seen, say, the story of plastic and see, I'm thinking of South Pacific nations or the Philippines and Indonesia and India, where there's just mountains, mountains of plastic. That's a lot of it that we sent there, but a lot of it that, well, actually a lot of it that we sent there, places like ExxonMobil sent there in the form of corporate decisions to corporate, to pack stuff up and, and use plastic where it was never used before. And people say, oh, well, they're not managing their waste. You can manage the waste all you want. You can put in the kind of supply that we're putting in there. And it's, well, to me, to me, unconscionable. I, I want to get back to Exxon, though. Now, you mentioned that, um, that the low prices made it possible. Now, but you also said it was what I read as leadership on the part of a dedicated crew that probably had a vision, and, a vision for a future that they could communicate to CalPERS and to BlackRock that without that leadership, the prices could have been low, but things might not have happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Their, their leadership made a difference because Darren Woods, uh, reportedly in the last hour before the vote, was calling up those institutional investors desperately, pleading with them not to vote with engine number one. So it's not like ExxonMobil didn't make an effort to convince those institutional investors. They spent millions of dollars as well to, to convince the institutional investors not to go with engine number one. Uh, and they had history on their side um, in terms of uh, shareholder proposals for ExxonMobil over the last two decades. I'm not sure any of them ever passed that weren't approved already by ExxonMobil management. Pretty much anything ExxonMobil management wanted, the investors would vote with it. So this was a historic precedent-setting moment when the, the shareholders voted against management wishes, despite all the lobbying that management did in order to counter what engine number one did. So certainly what, what they did in terms of leadership and in terms of uh, building a persuasive argument, um, that uh, played a, a big role and maybe as big of a role as the low oil and gas prices and, and the bad financial performance of ExxonMobil stock. But uh, if ExxonMobil stock was still flying high, if oil and gas prices were still high, uh, I would say then that leadership wouldn't have amounted to anything. The, the low oil and gas prices made that leadership possible, that, that leadership uh, effective, because it was in the right uh, moment and the right situation. Now, for the future, we have to be, we have to be wary of the possibility that, uh, like what happened during my career and what happened with the developer in uh, my, uh, my neighborhood, the people who are making decisions, they're not going to let you know what uh, is going on. Uh, the developer in my neighborhood didn't let me know what was going on with uh, his decisions on natural gas. Uh, ExxonMobil didn't let me know that uh, uh, there, there was going to be no research that was really going to focus on transitioning away from fossil fuels in uh, the upstream research company. You're, you're going to be kept in the dark. So you have to pay attention and you have to, you have to keep an eye on them. You, you have to be wary. You, you can't just assume that because they didn't tell you anything, then nothing bad is going to happen. But on the other hand, you also have to make sure that the conditions are always there to make effective leadership possible. Do whatever you can to lower the demand for oil and gas. Do whatever you can to convince institutional investors to divest. Don't personally invest in oil and gas and uh, tell your peers not to invest in oil and gas. And that can create conditions where somebody with leadership and somebody with uh, uh, great persuasive skills can, can really make a difference. Well, this is exciting to hear that the legwork of decades of people, every now and then there's a win and a, a big win. And which is not to say this is the end. This is just the beginning of there's still nine more board seats. 
among other changes. Yeah, there's still line three in Minnesota. And the Keystone XL pipeline was finally killed. Uh, they finally gave up on the Keystone XL pipeline after uh, a decade of uh, campaigning by Bill McKibben and 350.org. But line three in Minnesota is still going forward. And uh, Canada still has a very large car sands industry. Uh, and despite Canadian voters wanting to take action on climate change, there's a lot of money involved with uh, the huge car sand efforts in Canada. Um, so there's many things that um, still need to be done and many people that are still needed. Um, so despite the fact that there aren't enough renewable energy jobs to go around, there's plenty of uh, activism that's needed in order to give a, a fighting chance for future generations to enjoy a world that's comparable to the world that we have today. Um, and um, in order to avert the worst uh, effects of climate change, the climate scientists are telling us that this decade is the most critical. If we don't uh, take enough action to cut our emissions in half this decade, there's almost no chance that uh, future generations will have it as good as we did. I'm going to say this year, this month, this day, over this decade. And I, we can both say that but when I look at the online calculators, my reduction is about 90%, probably more now, a little less because I plugged my fridge back in for the summer, but total, like not a net increase, but it, like a total increase in my quality of life. I'm not suffering in any way whatsoever. I, I, I put anyone out there. I'll, I'm happier than you are. I'm healthier, more resilient, spend more time with my family than before, more connected with my community, more control over my career. And except I would have, had I not lived it, I would have argued, whoever's thinking, oh, that won't work for me. I would have said that more about myself than you, you dear listener. But then I do it. And then I face the challenges. And then I overcome each one, one by one. And I get what life is about. One of the things I talk about is um, pick your luminary from the past of uh, Buddha, Jesus, Aristotle. I don't think that if they were alive today, they'd say, if only, like now I realize that happiness, what I really needed was an iPod. That's what I was missing. I thought I had happiness before, but what I really needed was to be able to go to the Eiffel Tower whenever I felt like it. I don't think that that's what was missing from them. I think they, they figured it out. I think they were, if they were alive today, they would say, oh, more distraction. I, I know it to make me happy. I know what's right for me. And yeah, I'm distracted by those things, but I'm not going to let that get in the way. Well, one of the good things about COVID is it, it made it much more normal for people to just talk with people around the world using Zoom. <laughs> Now, of course, there's lots of jokes about how much people hate Zoom meetings and remote work. But there's also lots of people that refuse to go back to the office that uh, have um, learned that uh, remote um, communication with people around the world, that uh, that's a connection that they, they didn't uh, realize could, could be as fulfilling as it turned out to be. And there's a joke in Parks and Rec about vaccines turning Americans European. Well, anti-vaxxers aside, there is a positive in that... Um, Maybe Americans are also um, being willing to consider other people's points of view more rather than just focused on their, their social circle near them. Maybe they'll consider the worldwide global opinions about uh, the issues that matter. Uh, and maybe people are starting to get out of their echo chambers. I think this might be a good place to wrap up. I, I'm really glad to hear this insider view of what's going on with Exxon because you let me know more than just what was in the headlines. And now I want to know more. And when that happened, the XL pipeline happened, Shell happened, which we didn't talk about. Do you have any expectations of, of what will come now that the new board members are board members? Yes. Um, uh, in addition to the uh, new board members, there were actually a couple of other proposals that were really important that, were, uh, uh, that uh, ended up passing. And one of those proposals was related to being more transparent about the lobbying efforts of ExxonMobil. I think it's very important to expose how much money is being spent by ExxonMobil and where it's being spent to influence politicians. And I think people should pay attention to that and uh, counter the lobbying efforts because that happened with engine number one. They were able to counter ExxonMobil's lobbying efforts with their institutional investors. And the same thing should be done with politicians. And about the shell thing, it's, it's kind of like uh, on the same day that uh, the ExxonMobil board members were elected, Shell was ordered by a court in the uh, Netherlands that they had to reduce their emissions by 45% uh, from 2019 levels to 2030. And uh, yeah, just the joke about uh, 
uh, the European perspective, well, now their courts have a precedent for uh, bringing oil and gas companies to task. And we need a similar precedent in the U.S. courts. It's hard not to get too excited. We have to enjoy wins at times, although not to get too excited as motivation. Yeah, of course, not to get too excited because Shell is going to appeal. And who knows how long the, the Dutch courts will allow that to drag on. Uh, I mean, it's only nine more years to 2030, so hopefully they won't let it drag on. But it's a sign that the momentum is shifting, the tide is turning, and um, that should be motivation for people to help help that tide, uh, help that momentum uh, go the, the right way. Yeah, we're right where we should have been in uh, maybe 1980. <laughs> but I guess I'm going to ask one more thing. Do you have any sense of what for the rank and file employees at Exxon, is this going to affect them on a day-to-day basis? Do you have a sense of that? Well, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, there's been some Darwinian culling. So a lot of the people who were more more willing to do something about climate and help the company transition, they've already been forced out, whether quitting like me or whether they were forced out from the performance ranking system, they, they were forced to quit. So unfortunately, the people that are left, there's going to be fewer of them that are very passionate about transitioning away from fossil fuels. And unfortunately, the management, the way they promote, they're also going to promote people who are more recalcitrant about uh, climate change. But I think that um, the new board members, if they're put in the right positions and if they're allowed to have the right um, amount of power, uh, they might start to reverse this and they might start to hire people, hire new people and maybe hire experienced people uh, who can help with the transition. Uh, and uh, so that might be able to make up for the fact that uh, a lot of the uh, more progressive people have already been called out of the ExxonMobil um, employment. Boy, and now I would love to be in the boardroom at the first meeting when the new members are there. I'm sure everyone's going to be cordial, but I'm sure they're going to be like, <laughs> but now a quarter of the company. Yeah. yeah, this is only the first step. A lot more has to be done. But it's a, it's a shift in the right direction, whereas management always got what they wanted before. Now they don't. They can't count on the investors. Uh, and uh, in the past, they also thought that the government officials would also give them whatever they wanted. Well, I, I think the tide is turning in that direction as well, too. And uh, things that will go against management wishes will also come on the government level, too. Let's wrap up there. Although, if, is there anything I didn't think to ask uh, that's worth bringing up or anything uh, you want to say to the listeners? No, I, I think uh, you covered it. Thanks a lot for your great questions. Well, Darlan, thank you again. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. 